Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's the Wonky Show. Uh, we're back. There's a new PM. We'll speculate idly on the implications. There's a cost of living crisis. We'll think through what happens next. And there's new data out on students and digital. It's all coming up. The number of families, because you don't just think about parents. You think about the whole extended family. It's not always the parents that have got the money. Sometimes grandparents will step in to support their grandkids. Sometimes there'll be um, a rich uncle or something that'll... Uh, um, it's a bit Dickensian, but it it, it um, does happen. Welcome back to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm your host, Jim Dickinson, and here to have their photo taken at the front door, smiling with their satchel, as usual, a couple of terrific guests. Uh, in Newcastle, Gary Hughes is Chief Exec at Durham Students' Union. Gary, your highlight of the week, please. I am a big fan of anything which platforms um, mildly campus urban people from the West Midlands, so I am a big <laughs> fan of Joe Lysett and what he has done to rehabilitate our uh, much uh, maligned image. Yes, that was quite a moment wasn't it on Sunday morning there we go and uh, in Glasgow Elsa Crum is Director of Membership Quality Enhancement and Standards at the Quality Assurance Agency Elsa your highlight of the week please Ooh, well, I'm going to go with a professional one, which is um, I'm very proud of our, um, inclusivity, um, our inclusivity resources that we have just published today. We're looking at um, making sure that students can engage in academic integrity and that well, all groups of students can engage in that. So I'm very pleased about that. But I'm going to squeeze in a little personal highlight of the week, which was that uh, on Saturday night, I was completely fangirling with Anne, Alan Cumming, who was in Glasgow playing our national bard in a play called Burn. So it was fantastic. Such energy and positivity. It was a, a very good antidote to the cost of living crisis, I have to say. <laughs> well, fantastic stuff. Uh, great news. And in the southwest somewhere, David Carnahan is Wonky's acting editor. DK, your highlight of the week, please. Well, it had to be learning about our new Secretary of State for Education, Kit Malthouse's aborted uh, attempts to start a budget airline in the early noughties. That was quite the delight. Uh, Come fly with me. So, yes, we start this week with the Conservative leadership. Liz Truss won the race to become PM on Monday, became Prime Minister on Tuesday, appointed Kit Malthouse as Secretary of State on Wednesday, and she chilled on Sunday. Elsa, what's going on? Yeah, well, as you say, I think it's not really news now that uh, we have a new PM and Liz Truss, um, and we have a new uh, Education Secretary. Um, We also have um, a new head at uh, the at the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. And we've got uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, which is interesting. So uh, to have a climate change questioner um, in charge of energy and climate policy, um, but he'll also have oversight of research and innovation policy. Um, So that's interesting. And I don't know if you're familiar with um, Janie Godley, who's a Glasgow-based comedian, but she has referred to Jacob Rees-Mogg as a haunted pencil, which I just think is a fantastic um, description. But, um, you know, going back to Kit Malthouse, our new education secretary, um, we, we don't know a huge amount about him, although apart from the, the budget airline bit that DK has, has mentioned. Um, we know that he's a, a supporter of Boris Johnson and we know that he's a Brexiteer. Um, he, it's not all that clear what he thinks about higher education, um, although he, he did in the past chair the all-party parliamentary group for life sciences um, when he called higher education an obvious jewel in the crown. Um, and he did campaign for a additional research funding. So if he kept that kind of thing up, that would would be a reasonable start, I think. Um, We don't yet know um, who's going to be responsible for universities or science. We're still awaiting, or certainly at the time of my speaking, we're still awaiting news of that. Um, So so let's see. I think we've got a lot to look forward to. Um, The Prime Minister hasn't said a huge amount um, in the run-up to her election um, about higher education, apart from the very public um, call for all three A-star students to receive interviews at Oxbridge. But uh, I think that's probably not the kind of big idea that's really going to resolve the major challenge 
challenges that higher education's facing for itself. I think we've got quite quite a long to-do list um, and we don't know a huge amount about what how they're likely to tackle that to-do list, but I'm, I'm looking forward to getting into it today, though, in the podcast. Interesting. Now, 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 now DK, um, it, it is, there's actually technically quite a bit to, to you know, there's, there's a bunch of kind of consultations to respond to. There's, you know, there's, there's big challenges. Uh, is all of that just going to kind of problematically disappear or is it all going to problematically reappear? Well, um, as Elsa suggests, a lot of it depends on the policy direction on education, on universities. We, because we know so little at this stage about what the direction of travel is going to be, what the priorities of the government are going to be, other than the obvious stuff about uh, cost of living, NSS, and lowering taxes. Um, we, I mean, it is really anyone's guess at this point. I mean, I've been reflecting on the sheer amount of stuff that we're waiting to emerge or waiting for decisions on. Um, on the science minister side of things, we've got all of the stuff around um, affiliation with Horizon Europe. We've got a number of reviews of UKRI and wider research ecosystem on a very dusty science minister desk that has not been filled all summer. I mean, this is a key role in if we're thinking about um, national productivity, if we're thinking of any kind of national growth, if we're thinking of innovation, this is a key big, big role that needs a really, really good person to be on it. Um, over on the education side, we know this is going to be a joint appointment minister for further and higher education and skills. Uh, big question for me is the lifelong loan entitlement. This was a huge uh, Johnson administration flagship promise, the idea that people could use the student loan system to retrain and upskill throughout their lives. Uh, we don't know what uh, Liz Truss and her team are going to make of that if they see that as a priority to get that running in 2025. There's a bunch of technical underpinning stuff needs to be done on that. We're waiting for a response to the HE reform consultation, which was the thing that changed the terms of student loans and graduate repayments, potentially bringing in uh, the idea of a minimum eligibility requirement. We don't know how that's going to play. I suspect that's still going to be a thing. Um, there's going to be a higher education bill, which is going to be introduced into Parliament this autumn, according to the Queen's speech. Is that going to be a thing? Is that going to include the stuff that Liz Truss's team have hinted about, about abolishing the office for students? There's a freedom of speech bill. Everyone admits seemingly that it's really badly written. It's not going to do what it intends. Are we going to fix this? Are we going to push it through? Are we going to scrap it? Nobody knows. Um, so, you know, this is big, big stuff. And I'm very keen to see this government appoint some good people and get started working on it and making these decisions. Gary, the thing is, right, I mean, DK is right. There's a lot of kind of stuff on the table and it all sounds quite technical. But, you know, back here in Telegraph Island, uh, the really important stuff is uh, being the minister for middle class university student parents. OK, <laughs> and, you know, the reality is that the higher education minister adopts a certain kind of telegraph tone to a lot of their interventions. Do, do, do you, do, you know, do, do, you, do you think we're going to see more of that? Are you worried about that? You know, because, you know, you know, DK's right, there's technical stuff, but there's a lot of, pol there's a lot of politics here too, isn't there? Um, I think the things that interest me is what Liz Truss hasn't done. And I think the uh, discussion before um, the result was known was that Kemi Badenoch was destined for DFE. Um, Donnellan was threatening to come back and make the wall look like a McDonald's. Uh, employee of the month, uh, Secretary of State, July and September. Um, and that didn't materialise either. So there was clearly a choice, I suppose. It looks like a choice has been made to actually focus on what will win of the 2024 election, stuff that actually will matter to people. Um, now, Kit Malthouse, as we said, is uh, little is known of him. That's probably because his, his portfolio has been focused in other areas. Um, but it might also be an indication that she just wants stuff done. That is not the department that Truss wants to be generating headlines that are complicated, possibly because of the um, underwhelming uh, focus uh, and results that have been seen in schools, which will obviously match those middle-class parents. So I think the politics of it, I think, is um, seems to me to look a lot like she doesn't particularly want the lens of the press on this issue because she wants it to be on energy, the NHS and taxes. Now, I think uh, following on from the um, point around uh, Rees Mogg, I do think there's something very challenging about science. Um, I mean, if we're going to 
rely upon the higher education sector to deliver some really interesting and long-lasting impacts on um, energy technology and uh, innovation there. I don't know that that can come from a man who uses a typewriter. It, it's it's going to be, um, I think, a very challenging sell to talk about how leadership in the politics focuses on addressing the challenge of the sector when it's so easy to parody the man who is going to deliver that. Now, Kit Malthouse is just almost too difficult to parody because there's nothing that we know of him yet. Um, but I do think that the Telegraph readers will get something. Of course they will. So I am very interested in uh, time of recording. We don't know who the Minister for Universities is. We will soon. Um, I... I think that will probably, for me, and we'll know we'll know within a day. It's a difficult, you know. It's like if I got news for you, this is a difficult time to record. But um, but I think that will um, set us a, a a standard about whether that is, as my hypothesis said, that she just doesn't want to be as involved in culture wars as I think we suspected um, throughout her campaign. I think. I mean, I, th- I think the big thing, of course, is that that you know Liz Truss has you know famously said that um, the the first minister of Scotland should should be ignored. So I think this is going to be an interesting one to watch as whether um, you know Liz Truss is going to um, keep keep on with that with that view or whether she's going to stick to that conviction and attempt to ignore Nicola Sturgeon. Um, we you know we'll see. At the moment, though, um, Nicola Sturgeon's obviously um, she's um, doing all she can to to remain as popular as possible in Scotland, just having recently been directly involved in, in negotiating the arrangements that came to the end of the bin strike and you know ha- happiness is an emptied bin um so you know i think that's um, that, that's one to look forward to i, I think though that the challenges that are facing the incoming pm i mean anybody i mean I, you know i fully support what dk said about you know hoping that we'll get some really good people into those key positions but I mean the truth of the matter is that you know we're in we're facing such a set of circumstances um you know in the advent of brexit coronavirus a war in Ukraine in Ukraine um you know it's a kind of triumvirate from hell really so that I mean e- even a spectacularly talented team would struggle to make a good a good job of things here I think uh, Gary we've obviously one of the things we haven't really talked about here is opposition politics and you know you'd have to assume that a Keir Starmer leadership would be how can I put this suspicious of <laughs> and and at least and and you know probably aiming to water down or change the kind of core being free education pledge but but you know would you bother i mean this is really you know it's interesting isn't it you know does labor kind of even go there into that controversial space or does everyone kind of indulge in a conspiracy of silence in the run-up to whenever an election is yeah i sort of think the um the opposition politics would be really interesting i don't think that silence is going to be an option frankly because i think liz uh truss uh, at pmqs uh, yesterday seemed to actually be able to talk about substance. I mean, we've forgotten what that's like, haven't we? Um, somebody being able to go, you know, I uh, have a view about how this is paid for. Now, how it is paid for, I have my own views, it, and, and for HE policy wonks, it, it might not be the great difference between public borrowing or windfall taxes. That might not be for us per se. But she can talk about it, uh, and that is interesting. Now, if I were the shadow education team, talking about free education or about um, anything to do with higher education, the rationale has got to be that um labor gets asked questions about how is it paid for in a way that liz truss hasn't yet but you know we are on day three um so we've got to believe that at some point the country wants to know how these things are paid for i suspect that labor will be thinking that this is a maybe it's a third uh what do you call it the, the third rail is something you don't want to tread on but it's also an opportunity to actually say that you will take tough decisions and here are the sums um so i think bridget phillipson is going to have a uh, an interesting um, reflection as it starts leading into manifesto and campaigning time. But I think we we seem to have every indication they want to talk about schools. Like this is something we're actually the, the Telegraph Brigade are interested in schools crumbling, leaky roofs, large classes, that sort of stuff. The perception about where students fit in that and how that relates to um, older children, I think, is probably just going to fade out. Not because it's not important, but because you can only have forty-three priorities. Yeah, uh, in yeah, the yeah. grand scheme of things. But 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 that's interesting, DK, isn't it? So you know, if we assume that the Tories have a kind of co- coalition between the kind of new red wall voters and the shires and we rather simplistically and lazily assume that uh, kids in the shires are off to he and kids in the red wall need money spent on fe something has to give does something have to give it's all about aspiration which has always been a um, a classic conservative thing um conservatives argue two generations that they're in favor of individual aspiration people becoming 
what they want to be, not being held back by the dead hand of the state, not being sorted or pre-sorted in, into particular careers, particular directions. And I think that's been repeated so often because it's popular, because everybody, literally everybody wants the best for their children, wants their children to have the opportunities that they haven't. On that basis, I've always thought that any policy that looks to limiting the number of people that can access higher education is a very, very difficult sell on the doorstep. Even if you're talking about all of the great other stuff that's on offer, the apprenticeships, um, the stuff on technical training, on improvements to FE, all of which is really important and all of which is good stuff to do. The idea of saying, okay, you used to aspire that your children would go to university, would train to do graduate careers, would have the advantages in life that you have not had, and then say, okay, that's not actually the case anymore. We're not going to let you do that. Only a few people are going to get to university. We're going to decide who that is. That is going to be hugely unpopular in the shires, in the Red Wall, everywhere else. It's a really, really difficult sell. And the extent to which the Conservative Party has been flirting with these kind of ideas um, is something that should really be concerning party strategy. Yes, I mean, if you've if you've been dreaming of going to Alton Towers for a few years and then you're finally there, having you know spent twenty four hours driving to it, if you're at the gates and someone says, "No, nah, you're not coming in. Go to Diggerland," <laughs> it's probably quite upsetting. <laughs> Uh, can I just say that I'd rather go to Diggerland? It's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> Love Diggerland. I actually really miss having um, a toddler for that reason. Now uh, let's move on, shall we? Let's see who's been probably blogging better. for us this week. Hi, I'm Sally Turnbull, Chair of HESPA's Higher Education Data Insight Group. And this week on Wonky, I, along with HESPA's Executive Director, Jen Summerton, have been blogging about student-staff ratios, or SSRs. It's been a while since the last review of SSR methodology, and following changes at HESA, the Data Insight Group has taken ownership of this definition, and we're currently consulting on some proposed changes to improve their accuracy. We know SSRs aren't the most popular metric, but they are in prominent use, so we feel it's important to make sure they are as robust as possible. We firmly believe in the value of shared, transparent and sector-owned definitions for this sort of metric. And if you have a view on this, we'd love to hear from you. You can find out more on wonky.com. Thank you. Now, next up this week, as we record, uh, Liz Truss is due to address the energy crisis and the soaring cost of living. Uh, Gary, odds on students being included? Well, I think we've uh, passed the days when we thought that students would be included in any calculation of um, what it actually costs to live. And that's just so disappointing because it seems blindingly obvious to anybody who works with students about the extent to which they need support. Um, I think this week we've seen the uh, UK um, release an interesting statement where they are talking about the return of the maintenance grant. Uh, Steve West uh, is speaking today at the UK conference. Perhaps that will come up. Um, but the thrust of it really is, is a, a, at last a recognition from institutions that talking solely about the money that they need to keep the lights on and staff paid and gardens tended and that sort of stuff intrinsically linked to that is people coming and being able to eat and move and learn and live in a good way that is reasonably new i think we saw david bell a few weeks ago talking about how much money sunderland university needed without really talking about how much uh, money sunderland students needed in order to come to the university and spend those fees so i think that is at least a uh, recognition that you can't keep silent on this any longer the question for me really is is it will it be enough I think what we see in Wales is much more interesting, a recognition that um, people will need more than the minimum because the effect of inflation and the gradual erosion of both the amount of student support but also the thresholds at which people can claim it is now a question where there needs to be, to my mind, something much more root and branch, something properly innovative about the way that we fund students to access higher education. Now, there's no indication as yet, with the government being quite new, that that is at anywhere on the agenda let alone the top of it and we know that the focus that Liz Truss has put on reducing the amount of money that comes into the state and then spending it on the NHS gives really little hope that um, student support will be her priority. I think at that point you've got to ask questions about what do universities step in, what do they provide um, there. The UK statement seems to suggest that students who uh, need support can come and get it uh, from their institution it's really disappointing to me, I think, in that statement that 
there's still that little point about you know we need more fees we need more fees which is um you know possibly read the room steve that wasn't the place to make that point but um but institutions do need more money um I think I imagine the student turning up in October, perhaps full of hope. You know, they they think they can survive, but we know that students underestimate the amount of money that it actually takes to live. And the public information on university websites is still pretending that prices are as they were in 2014. So the realisation that money is not going to meet what it costs to live is probably going to hit in November sort of time. That's certainly when um, I would expect to see it locally. Now, the support is limited it's also, frankly, designed by people who don't access it. The, there are some really great examples of institutions responding to student um, student unions and the reality and way that money uh, needs to be allocated. I, I was really pleased this week, for example, that Durham University, uh, where I work, has announced that the UKRI increases student stipend. They will meet it for students that are funded by Durham University. They will also increase student support by 10% from the 1st of October. But there are just more undergraduates. There's a higher demand for that resource. And I think we need to have some really deep searching conversations about we can't just rerun the hardship funds that we used in 2019, but bigger. There needs to be actually some thoughts around what students will be spending money on, what they need. The thing that's missing, I think, in the conversation for me around utilities and rent is food. I think yeah. it's going to be food really security. challenging for the sector yeah. to say, yes, uh, the thought of a food bank at Durham University will horrify uh, the telegraph readers, <laughs> yeah. but I think it's a real possibility, yeah. Um, yeah. And, we, and we can't deny that reality. DK, let me run something up the flagpole for a minute, right? So, um, y- y- caveat alert, clearly there's a whole bunch of students in higher education that aren't being funded by their parents or, you know, are mature students or are care leavers or, what, or, or whatever. But, you know, t- to refer to my uh, thing earlier about the higher education minister fundamentally being the minister for the parents of students at university, <laughs> and, you know, we see that every year during Clearing Week, one of the things I can't work out is if I was Universities UK, I would be aiming all of this on the extra costs facing parents because certainly in England and I know this is different in Wales but in England we have a system that continues to suggest that parents have a role to play in the kind of funding of students costs and maintenance in university so surely you know for the you and yours audience and the telegraph and the nieces and nephews of the people in the in the Conservative Club, surely the right target here is to say parents can't afford this because I don't think they can. Um, yeah, you would think that would be the argument that you would want to make as a public affairs professional um, trying to um, assure government support. I am um, available if, for consultancy, by the way. Obviously, yeah. Yeah, this is <laughs> uh, something Jim can speak to you about if you're interested. But my thinking here is that the number of families, because you don't just think about parents, you think about the whole extended family. It's not always the parents that have got the money. Sometimes grandparents will step in to support their grandkids. Sometimes there'll be um, a rich uncle or something that'll, uh, um, it's a bit Dickensian, but it, 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 um, does happen. I would say, um, at least half, if not substantially more than half, of all families in the UK have got at least one student that's going to be at university and is going to need support. Clearly, families are struggling right now to do all kinds of things. And um, adding student support and the government, as we've, do- we've documented on Wonky, has stealthily increased the amount of support that uh, students are expecting to get from their parents just because they've not actually uprated any of the figures. Um, that's just another cost that's put on top of all of the other costs that uh, families are uh, facing. And it is fair for families to ask at this point, why should we be covering the, the uh, costs of um, students being at university to such an extent on top of all of the other things we are forced to cover. Um, it's a really powerful argument and it is something that needs to be heard more often. The and other DK, thing just before I talk to Elsa, yeah? we would know a lot more, wouldn't we, if we had the results of the Student Income and Expenditure Survey, the exercise that hasn't been run since 2014. But the, the thing that I'm finding really frustrating at this point is DfE officials must have 
early results from that exercise because it was run at the start of this year. So the idea that Natsen haven't given DFE officials early sight of the kind of top lines is obviously for the birds. And and the fact that we don't get to see it yet, either here or actually naughtily in Wales either, is really frustrating. It's always frustrating. There's always a long gap in getting that data. What we do know from the government's own data on fuel poverty is that 40% of student households were in fuel poverty in 2020. So this is before any of this kicks off, before the um, Russian illegal invasion of Ukraine, but before all of this, 40% of households are in student, uh, student households are in um, poverty. If you look at student households income after housing costs and energy costs, before anything else, they're an average of around £250 below the state definition of household um, poverty. Now, I mean, why is this? Obviously, we've talked about the the um, maintenance system. The other thing is the state of the student um, accommodation estate um, in terms of private rentals, particularly for second and third years. Um, these are properties primarily we're looking at uh, terraces. We're looking at uh, they were probably built late Victorian, early Georgian. They've got thin single walls. They're not particularly well cladded or insulated. They've got cheap windows and um, old fashioned cheap heating systems. They cost an arm and a leg to run. And what this comes back to is something that, I mean, you and I, Jim, have argued for on the site time and time and time again is a proper regulation of the student accommodation market. We're hearing all kinds of stuff about um, horror stories of um, landlords trying to um, put um, rent up substantially where it's all inclusive, trying to renegotiate the terms of it so students have to cover their own energy costs. Um, and the really frustrating thing is we don't know the extent of this. We only barely know where students live during term time. So we do need to get a proper regulatory grip on the student accommodation sector. This should have happened years ago. It's too late almost to do it now, but we are reaping the effects of our failure to address this system. And Elsa, while we're just while we're on this, you know, you're in a city right now that is suffering from a real raw, visceral shortage of bed spaces for students, aren't you? Um, yeah, well, we are. Yes, we're w- one of a few where it was really, really difficult. So. Um, yeah, it, uh, yeah. There just isn't anywhere for for the students to actually live. Of course, um, in within Glasgow, there's quite a strong tradition of local students going to the local universities, um, and you know, and that's all of them, including the University of Glasgow, which, as a Russell Group member, that's a, that's a slightly unusual set, set of circumstances to have such a local student population for that that type of institution. Um, but but typically, those students who can afford it, or those students who have parents who can afford it, um, you know, are um, are you know are, are often leaving home. So, however, so that a, lot, a number of the institutions have had to introduce regulations about how far away the student's home needs to be in order to qualify for any kind of um, accommodation, just to try and help with that. Um, and 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 yeah, DK is quite right um, to to remind me that you know that that the funding, the Scottish Funding Council, has a review of accommodation for students, which which is ongoing at the moment, but. Um, I'd quite like to, if I can. I mean, I think, I think, you know, I agree with everything that's been said about the, about the challenges around accommodation. So, and I, I absolutely, it's, it's really, really difficult. If I can move into thinking about what students actually do when they're at the university, um, you know, just like you know, we recognise for for pupils going to school, um, you know, students who are hungry, um, cold, very anxious about how they can pay their bills are are not in a good position to be learning well. Um, and actually, the same thing applies for staff. I mean, Gary mentioned earlier about the prospect of food banks at Durham. You know, there's a very strong prospect of food banks at very many of our universities, not just for the students, but actually for the staff as well. Um, and, you know, and staff are facing a really big challenge of how you can engage, how you can deliver a really high quality education um, to students while, you know, they're also needing to 
to, you know, to work really you know, long hours as well as studying in order to support their studies. Because, you know, as DK said earlier, a lot of families just can't afford to be supporting their students. Um, and, you know, and there are many students who, you know, who don't have that kind of support um, to be able to tap into. Um, and, you know, and a really grim scenario would be if we just, you know, we just can't meet um, what we know society and wider culture needs by, you know, opening up access to, to education, um, you know, just, just because we're having to deal with these things that are so much further down Maslow's hierarchy of needs. <laughs> yeah, well, um, this is the thing is, I was saying this to someone the other day, you know, there's no way we can even, you know, it's, it's refreshing that we're these days talking about the middle of Maslow's hierarchy around belonging, but we can't even get there if people are cold, nowhere to live and hungry. Do you know what yeah. I mean? It's like, you know, this is, this is, and, and actually when I see people talking about, you know, quite reasonably, you know, teaching and learning professionals talking about, you know, pedagogy and I constantly keep seeing things that I just keep thinking, read the room. <laughs> you, know what I mean? you know, there are people who, who, who are hungry and, you know, all lots of the stuff that, you know, the, the sector or individual universities are talking about just jars, I think, at this point. Gary, let me ask you uh, just, just, just one other question. So, you know, if I could characterise the way the sector kind of changes things, it would be look at what happened last year make some tweaks. Now, my sense is that if that's the, you know, fundamentally, if that's how we're going to approach the cost of living crisis, it may be too late to put in the right interventions to notice students who might be about to drop out, particularly on a problem that, because we know this, don't we, when problems emerge that we haven't dealt with for a few years, you need a couple of years, if you're not careful, to get people to a point where they'll admit them out loud. <laughs> you know, there's a there's a significant degree of kind of shame around, you know, at this point, talking about, you know, poverty, and you know, particularly in a university like yours, I would assume. So, so you know, what sort of signals... And what sort of kind of monitoring do you think universities or student unions or whoever need to put in to make sure that we're not suddenly kind of faced with a kind of real uh, poverty crisis or lots and lots of students dropping out or whatever? What, how can we notice faster? One of the things that's on my mind, Jim, is that noticing sort of implies that you're in it or you can look backwards. I think there is a crisis coming. Like I think the extent to which we can put things in place now will determine the effect of it when we hit the colder weather when loans start running out when people start scrabbling for solutions and find there's limited resources that's all been used up so i think the the signals we're seeing them now we don't have to wait to see them we are we can predict um you know we're, an, we're a sector built upon the fact that you should be able to predict some things based upon past experience rather than always waiting until you're in them um i think the the challenge for me i suppose is that then it's how organizations respond in a crisis we, we've got like this one of the greatest strengths of the sector, I suppose, is that we've got the cleverest people in it. You know, um, academics are literally listening to black holes and changing the world. I do not believe this is a going to be a three to six month period where what we need is more research or what we need is a thousand voices in a committee going, are we definitely sure that that's how money works? Um, what about the concept of money? Um, can, we, can we imagine being warm? Um, I actually think this is a managerial response. And at that point, you know, papers to Senate is like, what What the hell are you doing going to Senate? Like, we're talking about heating. Like, th this is a fundamentally a, a managerial response, which some people need to make some decisions quickly uh, in order to alleviate the worst of the pain that we know we can see co coming if we look around. Yes, us yes the now. same the same kind of style of management response that we saw in the, in, in, yeah. in certainly in but, the early days of COVID. But I, I guess. but I think we've had a couple of years where people have been had things done to them. That's going to be really difficult. Uh, I take the point around. Uh, our institutions are designed to be collegiate, that we've relied upon a lot of goodwill for staff that has um, required them to go above and beyond. Um, I think the temptation would be, so we're out the crisis now, so we don't need to do that, would be wrong. We're in a, we're in a different sort of crisis now. Yeah, so we, uh, we need people to dig deeper, and I just think that's going to be met with very understandable resistance, because I'm not sure how much deeper there is. Interesting. And, and in many ways, miserable stuff, but um, obviously we'll come back to this at various points at the course of the uh, term, and um, we'll obviously see whether or not students kind of get included in the, in, in the trust package uh, later today as we record. Now, every week on the show, we delve deep into the sector's past to discover stories of how things were and how things came to be. With academic registrar and sector historian Mike Ratcliffe, here's the hidden history of HE. So the past degree was the original degree. Reforms in the 19th century led to the creation of honours exams, top-ups, whereby you got but you added an honours exam. You could have more than one honours exam as more were added. 
Slowly the requirements for honours became more onerous, so the requirements for the past degree faded away. In the 19th century this led to a clear distinction between the reading men and the past men. The reading men, who were following the honours courses, grew in number. The past men were seen as a good part of the mission of the university, what Vivian Green describes as the finishing schools of the upper and middle classes. There were plenty of examples of how past men got on perfectly well with their studies, but not so well with the examinations. As an example, uh, Henry Chaplin uh, was uh, chastised by the Dean of Christchurch, uh, who said, As far as I can gather, you seem to regard Christchurch as a hunting box. You're hardly ever in college, and I must request you to either vacate your rooms to make way for someone who can benefit from their studies at the university. The student replied, But what do you expect me to do? The Dean said, You must go in for an examination. And so he did. It was a bit of a novelty to him, but he did very well. So the Dean summoned him back to say, you've done tremendously well with this, I must congratulate you on your excellent performance, but now you must go in for the honour schools. You've shown us your abilities, you will become a credit, not only to this house, but to the university, as I expect you'll be very successful. But Chaplin said, if only you told me before, I would have done so. But after my last interview with you, in which you intimated that I'd have to vacate my rooms, I'm very sorry to inform you that I arranged to go on a trip to the Rocky Mountains. Actually passing the exams never really occurred to him as an important part. It was matriculating in the college that was the thing that he was after, and he was having a fine time. He didn't really want to take part in the exams at all. Other students would take part in the past exams, but survived to the end. So, in 1909, the Master of Cambridge's Magdalen College indicated that only a quarter of those people who'd matriculated actually took the degree. Very large numbers didn't take part in this. But past degrees continued. Honours degrees became the thing that the aspirant people would take, but a past degree would sit there. So by the time we get to the Robbins report, we have this confusion. There are still honours courses and past courses. Some universities, you took the past course and then moved on to the honours course. Some places you could be on both simultaneously and you would decide where to go, but they were still treated as separate. Quite often, they were seen as the solution to the specialisation question. You take a past degree, it was more general. Only those people who wanted to specialise could take an honours degree. But of course, we know, in the end, honours wins out. Pass becomes just a part that we now get to. If you don't succeed, you get a past degree. But that was the original part. That was the original degree that everyone took. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now it's time for Play Your Data Right. Here to set this week's statistical conundrum is Wonky's associate editor, David Kerner. Okay, if you are familiar with the idea of Play Your Cards Right, this is exactly the same thing, but with Leo data. I'm going to give you the median salary for a subject and institution, and I'm then going to tell you another subject and institution. You're going to tell me if the median salary is higher or lower. This is from the most recent Leo data, three years after graduation, after the 2040-15 academic year, so it's the 2018-19 tax year, and it's for male and female students. So the median salary for civil engineering at Salford is £27,700. If I were to look at archaeology at the University of Cambridge, would the median salary be higher or lower? I'm going to go higher. I think uh, Cambridge will be higher than Salford um, because Cambridge will generally be higher than Salford. 
where you can't argue with, with logic like that. Although, Gary, I, I suspect you're right. I suspect even, um, even though it's archaeology um, and therefore one would think of that as being lower just generally, um, I think, uh, sorry, not lower salary terms, just I was thinking about the digging aspect of archaeology. Um, <laughs> I think um, I, I think I tend to agree with, um, with Gary's logic. Um, and thinking about the student demographic, I suspect it's going to be higher. Well, you're both wrong. The median salary for archaeology at the University of Cambridge was £26,300. So that's more than £1,000 lower than civil engineering at Salford. Thank you for playing. Play your data right. Longitudinal educational outcomes data presented in this way is indicative only. Median salaries can be affected by gender, prior attainment, region, residence, personal characteristics, and the prevailing economic climate. Leo data does not separate out graduate part-time employment in calculating the median annual salary. Now, finally this week, JISC has published the results of its student digital experience survey. DK, what did we learn? So this uh, plays into a big and contentious debate from the spring of this year that students were really upset about blended learning and uh, they were crying out to be back in lecture theatres, back in seminar rooms, back in labs, having the kind of experience that they initially expected. Um, the big finding from this survey is kind of a counterfactual. So the plurality of students, 45% wanted um, a predominantly blended learning experience. Uh, this only tops up out slightly the 42% that um, wanted their learning to be mainly on-site and 13% of course, um, we're looking for a mainly online experience. Uh, what I think this means we're starting to see, of course, this is a survey where the institutions involve us are self-selecting. It's not necessarily representative of all students everywhere. So we need to be a little bit cautious about kind of banding these figures round, especially as we're looking at what appears to be almost a margin of error change. Uh, we are finding that more students, I think, are starting to see and appreciate the benefits of a blended learning approach. They like especially the big, like, information uh, dump things. They can do that in their own time. They can do it at their own speed. They can... Um, go back to it. Um, if they need to, they can fit it around part-time or full-time work. Now, the survey revealed what students are actually getting. 28% reported it was mainly on-site provision, 42% reported the blend, and 30% reported um, mainly online. Uh, these questions change slightly from previous years. We've not really got a time series. We've not really got a chance to compare this to previous years. So, I mean, that's the big headlight stuff. Uh, the other findings which I think are more interesting is looking at the way students engage with technology. Um, a central message of the report it, it, is that it's right and proper students should have input into the way that the technical and online services they use are designed and uh, delivered. A thing that stood out for me, it feels like it's not good enough at this point that only 9% of students realise that they have access to equipment loans or funds to support their own purchase of technology to support their learning. And we know that students like particularly um, live video classes and they like the convenience of the virtual learning environment as a way to access learning at their own pace. Gary, let me ask you uh, this question, right? Because don't get me wrong, right? There's, there's a load of really helpful and quite interesting insights when you dive into the actual report from JISC. But this headline thing about Blended, it wasn't so long ago that there were lots of students who could only experience the lectures on their course if they were in the room. And clearly, there was then a period where the only way they could experience that was if they weren't in the room and logging on. And if someone then gives you a survey and says, do you want to be in the room, have the option, or only be able to watch it uh, remotely, and you can't be in the room, I'm assuming most people are going to go with the middle part of the Venn diagram, aren't they? I mean, aren't they? <laughs> You'd assume so, but that, uh, again, you make an assumption that it's being asked and understood in a way that thinks about it as a Venn diagram. You know, my dad had a terrible habit of being asked when it was white or red wine going, yes. Um, uh, and I, I kind of thinking that we're in that uh, pit where do students want blended or digital learning? The answer is yes. Um, 
uh, as well as face to face, as well as uh, access the library, as well as like it's like I I don't understand at what point we've dropped into thing that um, learning is a single track experience. Uh, you know, I, I can buy multiple things in multiple ways if I pop into Tesco, uh, but I can only learn in a certain way if I go to the University of Birmingham. Like, does that make sense? Um, yes, so yes, because think- also, I mean, presumably, even when there was that debate for about 10 years about whether or not lectures should be recorded, it's not as if students weren't using Google. <laughs> yeah, um, and, you know, and, and students with access needs had certain rights to have things recorded. So I think there's an extent to which we are outraged by things that have been existing for 20 years. Um, we, we've absorbed the telegraph. We've become the enemy. Um, but I think the, the future probably is, um, to some extent, asking better questions. So I think the extent to which students are designed in, uh, are involved in designing the questions that inform this sort of survey to me is as important as making sure that they are part of answering it and part of understanding the data. Because we're asking really stupid questions um, that any person who is a user of the learning experience uh, whether that is digital or face-to-face, we'll just go, actually, we shouldn't ask that. That is, We know the answer to that already. Uh, so, it, you know, social science asking questions to which we already know the answer. Um, I, I feel we've fallen into that trap with digital learning and actually innovation and creativity and experimentation is probably going to be much more important and having the systems by which we can evaluate and respond quickly is going to be much more important than setting out a 10-year strategy for the digital media which will which learning will cling to because in that period things will change itself like we've got to be much better at being fast rather than trying to bake things in Uh, and some of that has got to come from designing better research and i do absolutely think that has got to be the research has got to be designed with students not just understood by them also one of the things i i've been thinking about is you know if if you if you're not for a minute thinking about the kind of access need aspect of this if you're designing a program don't don't you have in your head a, a kind of desirable number of hours that students will spend in a room with each other rather than the number of hours they will spend either asynchronously or in Zoom rooms with each other? Isn't it's surely on one level this isn't about choice, this is about design if you're designing a learning experience, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that is the crux of it, is that it's it's a well-designed learning experience. Um, and that might involve elements of digital. It will involve, ele- you know, it's very likely to involve elements of in-person. Um, and, you know, and it is getting that design right. And ideally, as I think Gary was um, you know, was getting getting at, it should, you know, that discussion should also involve students in there too. But I think, you know, uh, and I think this probably comes through in the detail of the JISC um, survey, you know, so, you know, if we look so beyond the headlines of it and it certainly came through in a piece of work that we did um, called Made Digital where we were looking at the kinds of learning and teaching and assessment that were associated with improved student engagement and performance um, and what, what came through really strongly was that students wanted, they, they preferred um, you know, to be part of a, a, a sort of a designed um, a pedagogical approach and they, they preferred that much more than individual sort of whizzy bits of experience that they might have had on individual courses and um, they, they felt more, most confident when whatever they were experiencing was actually part of an institution-wide ideally approach um, to learning but particularly um, you know they wanted things to be thought through now that's you know that was a big challenge when we were in peak pandemic and everybody you know it was all hands to the, the pumps that were available and you know to be used we're now in this um, position where um, we need to try somehow and, and carve out a bit of space to, to design what those experiences will look like. And that's really very challenging for providers who are based um, in England because of some of the noises that have come out of government kind of, um, you know, poo-pooing um, digital or indeed su- suggesting that, you know, online delivery was in some way lesser than in-person activity. And the truth of it is that you want to go with the format of delivery that suits the set of circumstances circumstances and that suits the group of students you have as well because another really strong finding and um, that came out of the piece of work we did was that you know different types of pedagogy and different types of assessment are suited different groups of students in different ways so you know that's another of the you know of the challenges that we have and all of that comes right back to the point you made at, at, at the start yes and, and actually that's interesting so, so dk zoom out for a second um let's try and wrap up everything we've talked about today um clearly what the pandemic does is generate a bunch of circumstances that cause a rapid switch to online which is fundamentally about a need to get as far apart from each other as possible (laughs) right there's a theory 
that says what the cost of living crisis in this winter does is cause the diametric opposite set of circumstances where there's suddenly a need for people to spend as much time as possible in rooms with each other, right? Because you don't want 300 students in 300 houses dotted around the city. You want them all in a space on campus warm. And, you know, the, you know, the, obviously the elephant in the room with a lot of this debate has been, if you were to run it in person, is there the room at the moment? And the, uh, I guess my question to you would be, because you keep an eye on the kind of estates data, if we suddenly saw a massive uptick in demand for, you know, space on campus, students to kind of hang out and study where they might have been at home and so on, is there the room? Um, there's probably not even the room in a normal year in a lot of places. Uh, we tend in universities, it's quite easy to make an argument for, okay, we need a new science building because we need some teaching labs we need some academic offices and we need some space to put some uh, big kits. In practice, we've not been very good as a sector as building in uh, student social spaces, student just general hanging out spaces. There are exceptions. There's been some great work done in the updating of libraries and increasingly uh, uh, teaching buildings and the buildings which hold the students' union, kind of campus amenity buildings, are thought about as places that they would like students to be to um, to exist and to just generally hang out. And obviously, if heating is an issue, then um, then we would like students to hang out together in rooms that they are not paying to heat. But there are um, you've drawn quite a neat dichotomy there. But there are a couple of issues with that that I just briefly need to problematize. The first is students are going to be paying energy bills anyway. Doesn't necessarily matter how much energy they use. It's still going to be unaffordable for, as we covered earlier, the vast majority of students. Uh, so students need to get more money. One of the ways that they do that is work. We need to be careful about thinking, okay, we need to make sure all students are together in warm rooms. So we need to bring them all together as much as possible. If that's messing with somebody's shifts in a supermarket or messing with somebody's shifts in a care home, then we have got a problem. Uh, so we need to be sure that we are as flexible as possible. The secondly thing is even if you're going to keep students in warm campus rooms all day, which is a good thing to think about doing, I think they're not going to sleep in those campus rooms. They're going to have to go home to a freezing cold student house. And there is well, I would imagine a few of them probably will. Um, and we, we, we need to think that there that they're going to have to heat those homes in the evening anyway. And for a lot of certainly more modern properties, it's more efficient to keep the heating on at a low level during the day rather than crank everything up when you come in at the evening to try and make it warm enough so you can get to sleep without actually shivering. Um, so we I, need I, to I, think about that as well. I woke up in the night, DK, right, imagining that Kit Malthouse and, um, you know, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg are going to jointly today announce a national initiative to insulate student houses in the next month. There you go. Right. I okay. probably, probably need some time off. So that's all we've got time for for this week. Remember to dig deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Remember, you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and where you work ahead of everything that's going on in UKHE, pop over to the website to find out more about our subscriptions. So thanks very much to Gary, Elsa, DK and everyone at Team Wonky that helps make the show happen. And until next week, stay wonky. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.